Welcome in Rose City to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Ryan Clark, joined by Chris Reifer on this rainy Thursday morning here in the Pacific Northwest. A beautiful rainy morning, I might add, given the awful heat waves and smoke that we have dealt with. Your Weather Made in Portland segment starts right now. Yeah, uh, this is this is far better. I, I ran hood to coast last weekend, and, and my first leg was like in the middle of the day running through Portland, and it was absolutely brutal. Uh, in like 90 degree heat on the spring water corridor with no like no protection whatsoever sun protection whatsoever and it was it was brutal so like this i'm this is this is perfect 10 out of 10 no notes uh bring on bring on the rain yeah let's uh like a reasonable amount of it bring on a reasonable amount of rain yeah every so often for the next few weeks just just to give us a taste we don't need it to to totally flip a switch clean out the air make it so i don't have to water my garden like all of those kinds of things just you know let's take care of that exactly you you want to engage in the sort of dadisms like the oh we needed this rain i you know that's that's a classic that is for sure yeah i'm i'm not a dad but like i i say that yes (laughs) at the very least it's a it's a 35 and over uh man saying that's right that's uh, right so uh you know getting into it now with the with the timbers and thorns we'll, we'll start with the biggest news of the week um sophia smith and the injury yes <laughs> at this point in the season um you know sophia smith with her mcl sprain a mild mcl sprain as as was noted by the team and it's in its release um week to week for soph which is good news compared to what it could have been what it at times looked like when she got hurt on Sunday in a one, one draw against the spirit. Um, you know, I, I think she would obviously not want any injury as she noted, like any, no injury is good news as, as she put it. But um, I think a, a welcome piece of news for the thorns, because they, if you think about the, the timeline for her recovery, um, they only have two games to play, uh, in basically a five week period since she suffered the injury. And if she's week to week, you'd have to think that after a couple of weeks and being cautious that, that she'd be back for that uh, third match from now uh, in San Diego uh, thorns play in Louisville on, on Saturday won't have. So for that one. And then two weeks after that, they play the rain probably won't have her for that one either, but questionable. You know, we'll, we'll see on that um, in terms of her availability. Thorns had a, I think, really strong defensive performance against the Spirit in a competitive match between two of the best teams in the league. And and the Spirit proved their own medal defensively by really limiting the Thorns in the first half, even before Soph got hurt, um, and, and making it difficult on her, on Morgan Weaver, and on other players who have really thrived in recent weeks. But, um, you know, the Thorns put themselves in a position to be up 1-0 were it not for a, you know, difficult situation toward the end of the game where Mangus is, is, yeah, an unlucky situation where Mangus makes a nice clearance, but her hand happens to be in, in the vicinity of, uh, of her clearance. And so the penalty is, is set up and you know, people were upset with the call. I think it was the right call, even if it, it sucks, you know, the, the circumstance makes it feel worse for sure. But, um, I think a well-earned draw and Sam coffee was asked about that in, in the post game. And she, she sort of alluded to that uh, along with several other really great quotes from her. Um, she's a gem. So, so yeah, I, I think that 
you know, it was a good performance for the Thorns to get a point on the road at, at a very good team uh, to maintain their position atop a very tight table. Uh, and they, they got one more road game uh, now this Saturday against uh, against Louisville, which is less formidable of a team, but by no means a, a cakewalk, especially uh, without Sophia Smith. So in your, your opening agenda setting monologue, you hit at least, as I could count, three significant talking points. Uh, the first, well, well, I guess I should, I should say I will, I will send it back to you, which order you would like to take them in. But I, I, I counted Sophia Smith's injury, uh, the overall performance uh, in the game against the Spirit, and then the handball. Uh, which, which order would you like to discuss them in, Ryan? Let's talk so. Let's let's, talk let's do it in chron- in our chronological order in the way that I that I read it. Uh so her injury um is is as we said, you know, not as serious as as potentially um would have would have happened given yeah. like she left the field on crutches, she was in tears. Scary, like it was, scary it was mechanism scary of injury thing. too. I mean just as you saw it sort of play out in the play. I mean it looked like it was a CL kind of thing that it and that it could be a fairly significant injury it was slightly reassuring that she walked off uh, the field albeit very slowly and with a significant amount of assistance that usually doesn't happen and i say usually because it sometimes it does uh usually doesn't happen if you've got sort of a an obvious full tear of a major ligament or tendon like that um and so I was very, very, very guardedly optimistic, but not nearly enough that I would ever verbalize it uh, for fear of jinxing things, uh, that it wasn't going to be sort of a worst case scenario. And that is that is what we learned, uh, the that it is not the worst case scenario. Uh, you know, I mean, these these sprains of, of knee ligaments, that, as we know, just from kind of years of watching and covering this stuff, uh, can either be sort of two to six or sometimes even eight weekish things if they drag on. Uh, and so, you know, I think we do kind of just have to take it week to week and see uh, what that's going to mean for Soph. But, you know, I, I think what we learned is that we have probably not seen the last of Sophia Smith this season, uh, which I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but is a good thing because she's a good player. Uh, she's quite a good player. Uh, and and for the Thorns uh, and even the, the, the neutral soccer watching public, uh, that is a very good thing that that we are very likely now, uh, assuming her recovery goes well, uh, to to see her back with the thorns. Yeah, and I I think that even if she were set to miss the remainder of the season, which she is not, I think that you know there's a high likelihood she comes back with uh, two or three games left for them uh, in the regular season. Even if she she were to miss all of them, I think you can make the case that she's, she's locked in as, as the MVP of this league this year. I mean, that would have been a real talking point, right? If, uh, you know, I mean, if she wasn't even able to, to play anymore, would she have still been, uh, the, the MVP of the season? I think it would have been a, a decent argument to make. Yeah, uh, it would, it would have taken, I think an, an explosion, down the stretch from from somebody else that that's among the stat leaders it would have at um, least opened the door for somebody else to really make a case down the stretch go on a run uh and uh and and make something happen but as it is hopefully she's going to have multiple games left hopefully in those games she's going to come and dominate uh and slam and lock that door yeah you think about people like lynn williams potentially with gotham who's had a great season if she finished strong gotham finishes atop the league maybe maybe that could be somebody that 
that is up there contending with Soph. Ashley Hatch, she had a great game, um, you know, for for the Spirit against the Thorns and has had a great season. Second behind Soph in goals, uh, but two away from her and and some opportunities now to catch up. Um, but but in another respect, I think that the Thorns have two MVP candidates, and they both happen to to sit atop two major statistical categories in the league, that being Sophia Smith with 11 goals and Sam Coffey with seven assists in the league this season and, and truly, you know, displaying her abilities as a holding midfielder that uh, I think are unmatched. I think she's the best in the league and she's somebody that, um, you know, has truly established herself. There's not a single number six in NWSL that I would even think for a second about trading Sam Coffey for. Not not for one second. I mean, that, that would be – any call would be an immediate no if I was going to LeBlanc. And, like, not even a no thank you. Like, just, like, pick up the phone. They would they would start to say the name Sam Coffee, and it would just be like, no, hang up. Yeah. That's it. And that's easy. And that's an easy one uh, if you're if you're the GM of, of the Thorns. And uh, the ball that she played to, to Morgan Weaver um, was just a, a master class. That entire of, play. Of, I mean, yeah. come on. How many players do you see making making that play in, in MLS and MWSL in in leagues around the world? How many sixes do you see making that play where not only is she disrupting sort of on, on the defensive side and is part of recovering the ball? She sort of orchestrates and plays the combination. She works herself into space, and then she plays a perfectly weighted through ball uh, to Morgan Weaver to to set up the goal. I mean, come on, there there just aren't other players in the league making that kind of play with regularity. And we see Coffee do things like that, not with regularity. You're not seeing that every game because that's just ridiculous. Because it's that that's just a superlative play, but we've seen it multiple times from her. Uh, and layer that on to just the everyday stuff that she does in every single game, helping to organize the thorns, keeping tempo. She plays with tremendous tempo. That's one of the things that I most like in a number six is the tempo that they play with, uh, the, 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 the speed with which they're making decisions about where to distribute the ball and with which they do. I think teams that play with good tempo, basically regardless of style, tend to be effective and she plays with tremendous tempo as a number six. Uh, the The ball doesn't stick to her foot. Uh, she is constantly moving it, and 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 the results that the Thorns get from that it's a subtle thing, and it's something that that you know you you rarely look at a goal and say, "Well, that goal happened because Sam Coffey got the ball off her foot," and you know, <laughs> in in half a second, you rarely say that, but it's just the kind of thing that makes systems work. The defensive work that she does uh, is is good. I mean, it, she's an all-around, just basically, you know, like the weather today, 10 out of 10, no notes, 6. Uh, and I think we saw that against the Spirit. I think we're seeing the, and this sort of bleeds into our conversation about the performance as a whole, but I think we're seeing just a much, much more stable structure from the Thorns. Uh, and you don't get, I mean, whenever you're getting those kinds of results from your, especially defensive structure, you're going to look at your central midfield and you're going to say things are going right there. And and they are. So uh, yeah, I, phenomenal performance from Coffee. Uh, unbelievable play to set up that goal. 
uh, end to, if you listen to the broadcast, turn the game on its head. Um, I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious about that, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's just the kind of stuff that, that makes teams work and, and the thorns right now are, are in a place we can talk more about this where they're developing a game model that is much likelier to work in the playoffs than what we saw from them early in the season. Uh, yeah, and, that, and that I sort of track meet stuff in, early in the season that just that was not sustainable. No. And, and even for a team like Portland that led the league in goals by a wide margin, um, we were worried about that. We were thinking, OK, like, you know, from the outside, this looks like a team that is very vulnerable if, you know, the the ball is not bouncing a certain way if they aren't able to finish off some of these high volume of chances and and they get stuck in a position where teams are are counterattacking and thriving in in the massive amounts of space that they were able to get now this this switch to a double pivot has has closed up those defensive gaps completely and it has also allowed Sam Coffey and Rocky Rodriguez to as you pointed out play with pace to to you know be up and down and, and be box to box midfielders who make a significant difference on both ends. Rocky, I think a little more defensive oriented than Sam in, in terms of like how, how things have, have shaped out. I, I think, think that's di- just I Sam's different, tendency different in terms of the way the, in sort of their defensive roles when they're paired together. Rocky is the player who's buzzing around a little bit more as more of the eight and, and getting stuck in a little bit more. Whereas coffee is maintaining a little bit more of the balance but when called when called on to make an intervention like that, she absolutely can and doesn't has. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that that pairing, even though Rocky was was subbed out at, at halftime or shortly after uh, uh, for reasons that, that I think are, are fair to ask about um, and, and, and to wonder about. I think that pairing is the best that the Thorns have. Uh, and I think that that pairing is puts them in, in in the best position to succeed. And folks were rightly pointing out they weren't wrong at all that the Thorns had had trouble keeping possession and and, and didn't create much in in terms of chances uh, through a lot of that game. It got a little bit better in the second half. But this is a pretty new structure for them, the, and and they've been installing this structure when they've been without a bunch of their best players who are just now getting back into the team. You know, it's going to be an immediate upgrade to go from Christine Sinclair in sort of a playmaking role to Crystal Dunn. And and Christine Sinclair is a tremendous player. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And, and is, Hot take. And is an absolute legend. But in that particular role, Crystal Dunn is much better suited. And that's especially the case in in this kind of system. And so that's going to be an immediate upgrade. Working Hinasugi back in, whether it's as a sort of, you know, a, a 30 to, to, to 35 minute per game sub, or whether it's as somebody who's going to be starting, working her back in is, is, is going to be uh, an upgrade as well. And I thought she played well uh, after she came on in the second half uh, against the Spirit. And even then, it's just a matter of, of understanding the rotations and understanding the movements, where the space is going to be when they're not being as aggressive in their shape uh, as they were earlier in the season and that kind of stuff that just takes a little bit of time and will take a few weeks. But with veteran, experienced, intelligent players is something that they can do. But you step back and you look at just the health of the overall structure, that wins in the playoffs. I mean, that is what wins games and gets results late in the season. 
And we probably said it if we didn't shame on us at some point when we were talking about the Thorn sort of high flying, but frail, uh, sort of game model that they were, that they were implementing in the first half of the season, that that was going to be a problem in the playoffs, that that was going to be a problem late in the season when teams get a little bit more conservative, when they get a little bit more, uh, more conservative in their overall shape, but more aggressive in the counter, that that was going to pose problems for the Thorns. And this is the Thorns response. Uh, and I think it's the right response. And I, I think given that, you know, I mean, they're basically two games into this. Maybe you count some of those Challenge Cup games uh, during the World Cup break. But really, they're two league games into this. And I think you'd say they're ahead of schedule. That's a really good Washington Spirit team that they played this week. They're organized. You know, we've made the point over and over again. I think people in Portland need a little convincing. Mark Parsons is a really good coach. He has good players on his team. Uh, and and when you have a good coach and good players, you're going to have an organized team. And that's exactly what we saw from the Spirit. I thought the Spirit did very little wrong in that game. Uh, there were there were there were no Real Salt Lake like selfies uh, from from the 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 Spirit in in that game. And it's a really talented attack. You mentioned Ashley Hatch, pretty good. Oh, Trinity Rodman also quite good. Uh, you, you know, and and, and uh, Sanchez. I mean, you 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 look at that spirit attack there's a reason they've scored the second most goals in the league and how many good chances in that game did the spirit really have i know they had a lot of possession how many good chances did they have they had the penalty which sort of inflated their xg numbers when you looked at their non-penalty xg numbers there was about 0.6 for the game and that's pretty good against shoot. a team with with yeah that that ain't shooting that uh, that is shoot from the Portland that is shoot defense the yeah that's exactly yeah right. because that there's so much talent on on that uh, attack you could argue it's the second best talent uh, in in the league behind the Thorns in terms of attacking players and um, you know sometimes it's number one those are those are legit like star level yeah. players up top for them. Um, you know, Rodman especially had a lot of success um, out wide against Klingenberg, but um, that, that I think was made up for by, by the defensive team shape structure. of the thorns. <laughs> yeah. Team structure made up for the issues. And earlier this season when, you know, there'd be a, a very fast or athletic winger that would beat Quika on the edge or beat Kling on the edge. Um, and you know, the, Emily Mangus would just be standing there by herself having to like save the day or Sam Coffey would be playing in a ton of space. And now they don't have to do that now. Now with this um, formation change with, with the, the change in their defensive structure, they, they are the type of team they were last year, which was formidable defensively and lethal offensively. And now that has you game winners s- the, yeah, that, that can go yeah. find the goal. And even without Sophia Smith, the Thorns still have game winners who can go find that decisive play, right? Like Sam Coffey, like, I don't know, Morgan Weaver, uh, like Crystal Dunn when she when she's fully back. And I, they still have those players who can do that. But, I mean, we, t- we talked about it earlier. If you're putting Emily Mangas in a situation where she's going to have to defend in space a lot, she's not going to perform well because that's not where she excels. But if you put her in a position like she was in against the Spirit uh, on, on the weekend, she performed phenomenally well. And yeah. because that you've put your we, you've you've understood the characteristics of the player that you have to select, and you put her in a good position. I I, I mean, you had two second choice center backs for the Thorns and Megan Nally and and, and Emily Megas, who I thought both played well. Nally, I thought settled into the game a, a, as it went and ended up putting in a good uh, a darn good shift in a season that's been pretty difficult for her. I think you frankly had 
in terms of a one-on-one matchup that you just referenced, an absolute nightmare of a matchup for Megan Klingenberg. Uh, at this stage of her career, being isolated against Trinity Rodman, uh, not great. Not not what she wakes up uh, every morning looking forward to. I mean, she no. might because she's a really competitive person, but like not the kind of thing that you're like, this is one that, I, that I'm going to dominate. But because of what you just said, because they had that structure, they could minimize the weaknesses that they were going to face from uh, from from some of those just player personnel and kind of one on one matchups by relying on on, on the strength of, of what they had. And and so you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, folks can talk about the possession numbers all they want, but who got what they wanted and needed out of that game? The Thorns. And even with the result, which was unlucky because of the the handball, which we can talk about in a moment. But even with the result, the Thorns feel fine about a draw at Washington at this stage of the season. Denying Washington the, Washington the two points uh, that they would get from the win is is a win for the Thorns because of how competitive they are with the spirit uh, at the top of the table. And taking that point, I mean, that's that's a that's a zero or one point, you know, game on the form chart, right? Traveling to Washington, you feel great about a draw. And it's unlucky that the Thorns didn't take all three, which would have been a superlative result. But as it is, who got what they what they wanted and needed out of that game? It was the Thorns. And so, yeah, I mean, they, this has all been sort of silently throwing shade at folks who were really critical of the Thorns throughout that game, uh, in, including on the broadcast. But I, I think if you are... Uh, I think if you're you're Norris, I think if you're the Thorns players, looking at the way that played out, you feel good about the trajectory that you're on, the performance that you put in, and the trajectory that you're on heading into the playoffs. Yeah, definitely, and I think that you know the the worry of replacing Sophia Smith has been something that I've seen fans talk about online, and rightfully so. Soph is the MVP. She's she's an incredible individual player. Um, you know, one of the best in the world, but given their tactical adjustments, given how they look in terms of their defensive shape, in terms of their organization, um, even with some of the struggles they had uh, attacking, I don't think those against Washington were a product necessarily of the thorns, not having quality, but rather Washington having a really good game plan and Mark Parsons sort of rising to the moment uh against a thorns team that's that's tough to handle and they still had an amazing moment with coffee playing that ball ahead to weaver so replacing smith is a concern that people have i think given the form that hannah betford was in during the world cup break um that that is a worthy fill-in for smith during this time and and somebody that you know they need her to to maintain her her good form and you know, keep scoring goals and, and, you know, being the, the big personality that she is, she, she's, um, you know, somebody that brings the team together in a lot of ways too. But, um, you know, her and Weaver have, have had good chemistry up top, frankly. And, and that was strengthened, I think during the world cup break and, and can only be a positive going forward as, as they try to sort of fill the gaps where, where so sort of just takes over. It, it's going to be different. It's not going to be, you know, give the ball to Hannah Bedford and have her make one turn and, and score the way Soph does. She, she is somebody that has thrived because of the playmaking abilities of others and her ability to, to finish clinically that goal that she had uh, in, in the first game after the, the world cup break 
um, was was phenomenal and and showcased, I think, what her value is as a striker, which is is this sort of center forward more more type of player that um, that thrives from from people like Morgan Weaver, who are relentless, who are playmakers, people like Sam Coffey, who are relentless and who are playmakers. Um, she she can be and I think will be a beneficiary. Yeah, I mean, and and I think even zooming out from that, because I, I agree, it, Bedford showed during the the World Cup that she uh, is is capable of rising to this challenge. She's done it before, and I, you know, I, I think if she uh, if she shows that kind of form, I, I think there's no reason to think the Thorns can't get the results they need out of these next couple of games, assuming Smith's going to be out for both of them. But even zooming out, I mean, the 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 overall attacking unit is still very strong. You got to think Crystal Dunn's going to be back in for in a starting capacity uh, at Louisville. Uh, Morgan Weaver, as you mentioned, is still there. Olivia Moultrie has has had a very good season. Uh, you know, Hirasugita can certainly play. Uh, you know, there is still plenty, plenty, plenty uh, of talent in that attack. Even if they're not chucking numbers forward, there's still plenty of talent in that attack to go get the goals that they need to get the results that they need. Uh, and so. Uh, you're you're absolutely right that there is no replacing Sophia Smith uh, because there are just no players like Sophia Smith in this country and maybe in this world. Uh, but there's still plenty of talent in the Thorns attack to be able to get the result that they need out of these couple games while Smith is is healing from her injury. The racing Louisville game on Saturday. Want to talk about the handball? Uh, we mentioned the handball a couple times. I think there's a little bit, a, a little bit of a, a, a broader conversation to be had about the handball uh, before we move on to Rossing. Um, but you know the the the, uh, the the laws of the game have have undergone multiple sort of reinterpretations uh, in terms of how referees are applying the hand the handball rule over the course of the last decade or decade plus, and the most recent sort of evolution of that that came down i think it was a couple of years ago now uh essentially strips away a lot of the consideration of external factors and just looks at arm position and essentially and the the philosophy is if a defender's arms are out or what is somewhat of a misnomer called in an unnatural position i don't think in the way we ordinarily think of that word Mengus's arms were in an unnatural position because when you're making an athletic move like that, your arms kind of go out just to provide balance naturally. But the way the rule now looks at it is if a defender's arms are out, they're taking the risk of a handball. They're taking the risk of a deflection. Uh, and so that's why even though it it there was clearly no sort of subjective intent by Mengus to handle the ball, uh, given that it came off a very good play <laughs> that she made uh, and legal play, obviously uh, to, to play the ball uh, off of her foot um, and, and went up, up and struck her arm because her arm was out away from her body uh, under sort of a strict interpretation of the laws as they're interpreted today. That's why that was called. Uh, and, and that's why there was some, con- there was some discussion after the game that somebody asked the, the referee, uh, did you consider sort of the deflection? And the referee said, no, that's why because the the emphasis has been put on just where the arm position is um and and the reason that 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 uh that the folks who uh, who govern the laws of the game uh have done that is because they felt like when when referees were considering 
you know, deflections and distance between uh, the deflection and the arm and all of those kinds of factors, they felt like it was really inconsistent in terms of how the handball rule was being applied. So they've kind of tried to strip away a lot of that and only look at this one sort of very objective factor uh, in, 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 in terms of arm position. Uh, I think, so they've kind of done that to try to get consistency through this like more narrow objective focus on, on, on the handball rule. I think there's a higher level conversation to be had about whether we've actually accomplished that consistency. There was a play with Alyssa Thompson that was far more egregious <laughs> in terms of the arms being out and, and all of that, that kind of stuff that was not given uh, in NWSL, of course, kind of arguing through anecdote uh, is, is, is never super reliable. Uh, so, but you know, I mean, there's, a, there's a reasonable question to be asked about whether, that consistency has been accomplished uh, with this very narrow focus. Uh, and if it hasn't, whether referees should consider more of these factors, because frankly, just from a, is this good for the game kind of perspective? I think a lot of folks would argue pretty persuasively. I certainly would that that's a pretty harsh thing to do to basically give a team a goal for what was kind of just a random deflection uh, off of a totally legal play without any intent uh, to give a 78% chance at scoring a goal to the other team for that. Uh, that's a much higher level conversation, though. I know it's one that is ongoing. It is one that's ongoing. UEFA actually has, for this upcoming season, gone away from this very narrow focus on arm position and is starting to consider, once again, some of these other factors. Uh, so, you know, I mean, this is that that is a, a conversation that has been ongoing and, and that has been sort of going back and forth uh, with the folks uh, who govern the laws of the game uh, for a long time. But given the where the focus is now, uh, I'm not surprised it was given. That's kind of just how it's been. Uh, I don't think you can blame the referee uh, because that's the instructions that they're that they're given right now. Uh, and and so that's why it was awarded. Uh and I think, you know, I mean, I, I think if you're the thorns, you kind of just swallow hard and have to take, have to accept that, uh, that under the current interpretation, that's how it's going to go. Um, but I think you can also just say, that's just bad luck. That's not Emily Mangus's fault. I think you can look at the sequence and say, you know, we should have done X and Y better to, to maybe manage the circumstances as a whole, but she made the play, uh, and then was just frankly, really unlucky. Yeah, and she made a play that you know potentially prevented a goal yeah. in itself, right? Yeah. So, so good defending, you know, giving unlucky. Yeah, giving Bixby a chance to stop it in a penalty is is I think a net victory. Yeah, in its own per, right. Perhaps, but, yeah. but even then, I mean, it's it's not like the play that she made was was inherently risky in terms of drawing a penalty. It's not like there was a, a high risk tackle or something going in. Right. It was just a really unfortunate deflection that, that I mean, that ball could have gone anywhere from uh from uh from her her very good uh intervention, uh, and it just so happened that it popped up and, and hit her hand. I mean. Bad luck. I, there's nothing really more, I think, to think of it uh, in terms of that. But it's not a situation where I think you, there's a good case to be angry with the referee. Uh, and I think that's just kind of one of those that you can say, shoot, that that just didn't work out uh, quite as well as we wanted and, and, and probably lost a couple points because of it. Uh, but that's that, that's that's how it goes. The, that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes. 
Yeah, uh, Timbers fans are are pretty, you know, incensed with uh, referees right now. We we will talk yeah, about I that mean, momentarily. Just some, some nonsense in, in, in yeah. the RSL game, but yeah, S- some pretty crazy stuff there. Uh, Diego Chara with as pointed of comments as I've ever heard him have about referees, and he's never usually a fan of referees. Um, but you know, just before we we get to that, just brief on the on the Louisville game. Obviously, a, a Rossing Louisville team that uh, is is in sort of middling form a couple draws since they came out of the uh came out of the world cup break and um and and a team that has not allowed a lot of goals this year you know 17 goals allowed this year which is among the best in nwsl i believe it's fourth best in the league which is is pretty impressive get they have they have you know a, a solid enough team to make the playoffs they're they're outside of the picture right now sitting in eighth but only three points back of the rain for that final spot. Side note, crazy that the rain are in the final spot in, in the, in the NWSL playoffs really right now. It is, it, you know, you, we run through the points every week and we talk about it, but thorns are 29 on top 27 for North Carolina and the wave second and third 26 for Gotham and the spirit in fourth and fifth and 24 for the rain in sixth. That is, that's that's what you're dealing it's with really and tight. that's there's there's no room for error you know if, if you're the thorns you could be anywhere from on the road in the first round to shield winners just by the the by a single play by a, a single you know turn of a game and and that's by a single unfortunate you know deflection that leads to a, a penalty for a handball yeah we, we would you know you know looking at it from the outside fans would hope that you know that that would not be uh be the reason why they don't get the shield that would uh that would stink and so would like a final day thing like last year where uh you know they go to Gotham expecting to fault. win yeah well they they blew it that's <laughs> it sucks um so so they're in a strong position but we'll we'll see how the rest of of the season goes uh, the the Louisville game is is interesting because it's on the road against a solid team um, want to ideally get three points out of that to give yourself more breathing room heading into those, those two home games, uh, against the rain and against San Diego, two high level teams that, that are going to be up for it, regardless of the fact that it's at Providence park. So this is one of those got to get ones. I feel like for, for the thorns in, in a difficult final stretch. Yeah. I mean, these are the kinds of games that, that if you want to win the shield, you need to maximize. Uh, and that's not to say that if the Thorns don't win on the weekend, they won't win the Shield. Of course, there are games remaining to be played. Uh, but, I mean, this is just the kind of game that is not an easy one by any means going on the road to play play Louisville. I, Louisville isn't Washington, uh, but they're a solid team. They're no minnows by any means, uh, as they have been in, in, in years past. And so, you know, I, I think this is a, a, a tricky one for the Thorns, especially without Sophia Smith. But it's one that they nonetheless have the talent uh, and I think now have have sort of the, the the structure to be able to go and get uh, those three points. So big. I mean, they're all big games now. Uh, from here on out, every single game is going to be a big one. Uh, and and uh, that's just the nature of the table being what you just described. Uh, and and you know the ambitions of the thorns being what they are. Uh, but this is no exception. Uh, and and it's an opportunity to go and get three points. Which, if other results go their their way, could mean that the Thorns do have a little bit of breathing room up at the top of the table uh, if they can get these three points. So uh, it, it, it's a big one. Uh, hopefully, we will see Crystal Dunn back in starting form. I think that's one of the big things to to watch for. 
for the thorns going in. And if it is, then you would think that a lot of the onus of the game, especially in the attack, is going to fall on Dunn, uh, whose shoulders we know are plenty broad enough to take on uh, that kind of responsibility. Yeah, she's proven this year that, you know, she's the mo- one of the most important players on this team and and somebody that, you know, has has been a consistent threat on the attack too. You know, for a while she was right up there with Soph in terms of goals in, in the league and um so this is an opportunity with Soph gone for for her to step into that more prominent role again. Um it'll it'll be good to see her back. It'll be good to see Kelly Hubley back from suspension. I think that the Thorns while they're working Becky Sauerbrunn back into the fold um, and she continues to, to recover from her heel injury, uh, that, you know, having somebody as solid as Kelly Hubley next to somebody as solid as Emily Mangus, you feel good about it. Even if Becky Sauerbrunn never gets to a point where she's ready to start this season, given the, the nature of how difficult that injury was, um, those two are, are excellent. And I think the and, hope is over the course of the next month or so that Sauerbrunn will get to the point where she's ready to start and sort of be a regular back in the lineup again. Uh, certainly the, the not congested schedule is, is going to help in that respect. And I think given her availability last week, you'd hope that we see Sauerbrunn for 15 minutes or so, uh, in this game, uh, in this game at Louisville, that would be a good sign for the thorns. If they're bringing on a central defender, uh, late in the, you know, later in this game, because that would suggest that they're, they're in a pretty good spot. Um, but having that ability, you know, if the thorns are able to get their noses in front in this game, having the ability to bring Becky Sauerbrunn off the bench. Uh, to help shut things down uh, late in the game against a, a Louisville team that even though they haven't scored a ton of goals, certainly has some tools uh, and, and has some weapons to, to deploy in the attack. Uh, I, you know, that that's that would be a nice luxury. And so I, I think those are the, the, the hopes for the Thorns, but it's not going to be an easy task by any means. Right. And it's three home games after this for, for the Thorns in a row uh, against three elite teams. You've got September 16th against the rain. That is Megan Rapino's last game in Portland. So that'll be a very emotional game for everybody involved. Uh, Thorns host the wave two weeks later on September 30th. Then a week later host Gotham, all three at Providence park, all three against really good teams. You get three points against Louisville. You could put yourself in a position where you get enough points out of that trio of home games. Then that, that last one, on the road at Angel City on the 15th of October uh, won't even matter for you for for the shield. Now, it probably will, <laughs> given how insanely tight the table is. You're probably yeah. going to have to play every every player to the last second. And frankly, given the fact that Portland is in a position where they they might get a week off uh, before the semis if they finish top two, um, even if they have the shield in hand, you'd think that for that Angel City game that they'd want to play mostly everybody to, to keep the form yep. rolling. Yeah, uh, if they have that the week post-season. off, I think you certainly do play it out. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of Saturday's game. Um, it will dictate, I think, the the amount of pressure. There's obviously going to be a good amount of pressure in those three games anyway, but I think it'll it'll dictate a lot of what that pressure might look like. Moving on to the Portland Timbers, who just played last night. Or, as they're sometimes known, Thorns 2. Yes. <laughs> they they they, uh, they play last night against Real Salt Lake. Um, not a whole lot of expectations coming into that one, just given the, the issues against Vancouver, uh, the, the turmoil the team has experienced in recent weeks with the firing of Gio Savarese. Uh, but 
the Timbers got a good result. They beat a bad, let's let's say it up front, bad Real Salt Lake team that's been in really poor form. Uh, but Santiago Moreno burst out of his slump that he's been in all season. He he was emotional, got to play in front of his mom, which is is a special thing for him. She's she's stayed with him and helped him through a difficult few weeks. Um, so, you know, always love to, to see moments like that. Um, but a goal and an assist for Moreno in a game that he was very effective. He definitely had some mistakes. Let's, let's not ignore that. There were a handful of moments that, you know, you would have expected the Timbers to get a very dangerous shot on goal that, you know, he had individual mistakes that prevented that from happening. Um, and that's sort of been the story for most of the season for him. But, the good outweighed the bad and he was really positive and Felipe Mora finished off a, a great goal. He's been in good form. Gotta love that. And if you're a Timbers fan and gotta wonder, you know, if he has been healthy all season or if he had been healthy all season, um, would the Timbers be in this position right now? Would I mean, they? Yeah. I mean, who knows? <laughs> look, look, look for a while, you know, the, the issues were not as seemingly like widespread and institutional, well, institutional is a different word, but I mean institutional. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't as widespread across the roster as they, I think, are now. I, th- I think there was a period earlier in the season where an effective striker was really the only Could've thing that difference. they were they yeah. were missing, and it, it, I think it would have in a lot of those games they dropped points. But you know, that's hindsight is twenty twenty. I just think in in the now, it's it's good to see Santiago Moreno sort of, uh, you know have that confidence booster type of game. The Timbers would hope that that continues, that his level of effectiveness is maintained in coming matches, including Saturday in Seattle, which is obviously a big one. Timbers still on the outside looking in on the playoffs. It seems like a bit of a stretch to, to say that they are positioning themselves for a late season run after last night's win. Yeah, I, I, saw some, I saw some Timbers fans uh, snorting their fair share of hopium on the internet you, after I think that you victory. smoke opium, right? You don't snort it. You can crush it up and snort it. I that, think, but uh, that, that is dangerous stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they were snorting opium, uh, maybe with a couple of folks injecting opium. Uh, <laughs> just, just, just say no to opium folks. Yeah. Uh, just say no. That, that's where I'll leave that <laughs> commentary. But <laughs> the, uh, look, the, the performance was, was middling a lot of the time as well. I think that Portland had some issues near the end where they, they put themselves in a position where they almost dropped points again. They, they allowed a goal, I think is in the 83rd minute from Morongo. Um, and, you know, it was a tough deflection and hard for Bingham to sort of keep an eye on, but you don't want to put yourself in that position. Bingham yeah, had a few and, good, and they'd good have saves been under too. some pressure there too. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, look, I, I think your your point about RSL sort of immediate form is 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 well taken. Here's their last three games heading into to this one, and and this was an RSL team that was in really good form heading into League's Cup. Uh, they'd they'd won a bunch in a row. I think they'd clawed their way up to third in the West or something like that after being sort of down around where the Timbers were uh, for a good amount of the first half of the season. So uh, they had made a number of signings uh, in in the summer that uh, that had had really sort of started to come good. Jefferson Saperino had started to play really well. Chicho Arango and coming in had made a big difference. Diego Luna, who did play last night, uh, had been good and was not great last night. But their last three results, uh, going back to August 8th, their final League's Cup game, 4-0 loss to LAFC, uh, then 3-1 midweek last week uh, at Houston in U.S. Open Cup. That's a loss. Uh, 
than a return game in the league against Houston at home, lost 3-0. So this was not an RSL team where the vibes were great uh, in the last few games immediately coming in. Uh, and it was a, an RSL team that, you know, looking ahead, they, they've they got Colorado at home, a rivalry game at home uh, on the weekend that rotated not enormously, but a decent amount. Arango did not start. Savarino was out for the game altogether. Uh, Demir Krylock, who's kind of become a like halfway starter, halfway not. Uh, he he also did not start. Uh, you know, they were starting Rubio Rubin, who hasn't been getting a ton of minutes. They started him uh, in, in the attack. And generally, you know, I mean, it was a fairly weakened RSL team against a Timbers team that was last weekend, right? Because they just kind of need to throw everything at every game. Uh, there were a couple of sort of rotational choices made, but I think you'd say in form, at least, you know, I mean, the selections that the Timbers made were pretty close to the the best team that they can put out on the field. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the first goal was kind of just shambolical <laughs> from RSL. <laughs> One of the weirdest goals I've ever seen live, right? Because yeah. you've got like kick and chase levels of ball watching happening from from the Rail Salt Lake where they're all just sort of staring at this amazing i think you know blooper by uh by mosquera on one touch which was like cool but nine times out of ten there's going to be a defender comes and claims that yeah a goalkeeper will come claim it or a defender will actually like and not and not nine times out of ten 99 times out of 100 (laughs) maybe 199 times out of 200 like you know this this was not a brilliant build-up uh, shredding the <laughs> shredding the RSL defense by the Timbers. This was this was a selfie. I mean, this was the pop fly falling between two outfielders uh, in, in in baseball. And and you know when Santiago Moreno is scoring flat footed headers from inside the six yard box, you're going to want to look at other factors than necessarily you know brilliance from the attack. Uh, yeah, I mean the the moon looked really cool. Maybe they were all just sort of right. staring. Uh, up uh, at really, it. I got a really phenomenal view of the moon at halftime. That was that was something else. It was great. Uh, yeah, that was sick. So, you know, I thought the first half, frankly, neither team generated a ton. Uh, and and I thought it was kind of a bad half of soccer in many respects. Uh, RSL, I thought, came out and took the initiative uh, quite a bit in the second half. And especially as they started bringing on some of those subs. Uh, I think they they looked like they were getting on top of the game. And I, I thought an equalizer was coming pretty quickly. And then the Timbers scored a phenomenal goal against the run of play. Uh, and I, I want to give credit. It was a really good team goal. Uh, it was a well-worked sequence, uh, a nice switch of play from uh, from Bravo, perfectly uh, put to to Santi, uh, who was who was sort of on the on the edge of the 18-yard box on the on the right side, and then a really nice and decisive uh, layoff, essentially from uh, from from Santi for for Mora, who finished it with confidence. Uh, really nice team goal. And and it came against the run of play in a moment in which the Timbers looked like or Thorns too looked like they were uh, they were vulnerable, uh, and that really put them in a good position in the game. RSL continued to hammer away, away a little bit, uh, but I thought even after conceding uh, to uh, to RSL to go two one, I thought from there the Timbers did a great job of managing the game. They made a lot of good decisions with the ball that sort of just allowed them to, to, to bleed out the time. And, and, you know, overall, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a good win because I think there are a lot of things that you can look at both in the performance and in terms of the strength of the opponent and the fact that the game was at home where you'd say, you know, that, that would be a, if you don't win that game, it would be a problem, but it was a win and it was a win with a, a, a 
you know, credible enough performance that you have to call it significant progress from where they were. Now, that's probably more of a commentary on where they were than the before than than how good they were against RSL. But give credit where it's due. You know who didn't get a whole lot of credit? Uh, this was so <laughs> from, dumb. from from fans uh, is uh, is the referee. Uh, the the calls last night involving uh, Ojeda, Brian Ojeda, and and Diego Char were were the nexus of this. So the first one was uh, a, a sort of collision that happened between Ojeda and Chara. Uh, afterwards, Chara does, does this sort of half swipe thing that doesn't really make contact with with Ojeda's body or the ball or really anything. Um, and, and this was after Ojeda fell down and sort of like got up coming back up at Chara. I mean, look, all of this was like light extracurriculars, the kind of yeah, thing yeah. that that I thought Dickerson handled correctly the first time, which was like you talk to the two guys like you tell Chara, hey, like, don't don't do that. You tell Ojeda that was ridiculous and hilarious and you just humiliated yourself on television. Uh, yeah. By, and by, proceeded by... <laughs> to proceeded to get booed every time he touched the ball after that right. point, even, even before what would, would come later. And so by, that by was, blocking. that was the thing about yeah. this that was just ridiculous. I mean, and, and, and honestly, you just have to laugh at it is somebody in it. I think the, the VAR center it's in Atlanta, right? Is, am I, am I confusing that with the NBA wherever the VAR center is now, the remote VAR center, some dude sitting in a dark room somewhere looked at this <laughs> and decided that it was a clear and obvious error not to give Diego Chara a red card, which like you just know that the VAR is like that one guy in the comments after a game <laughs> that's like, that should have been a red card. And everybody's like, come on, like, <laughs> give me a break. Uh, and I, I mean, it, it, it's a, it was a ridiculous play on which to recommend review it somebody's gonna get gonna talk to that var about about that moment being like yeah that's that's not exactly what the clear and obvious standard means um and and uh, you know i thought i think dickerson's ultimate decision to give yellow for it was like eh, fine like whatever you know you see yellow given but for it, light hit light extracurriculars like that so whatever but, but it was so weird for it to come out of VAR and Chara was even confused about that. Like, you know, if you're going to give a yellow in that situation, why, why didn't he in the first place? Why after reviewing it, did that come out of the review in, in a way that you're reviewing it for a red, you're reviewing it yeah. for possible violent so, conduct. So, so was the, it, the was rule, it semi-violent conduct? I mean, I, it, that was what was so confusing. The rule book reason for that is like the, is the question of whether it's a red card is what triggers the review. Once the review has been triggered, the referee can make any decision that they find warranted. And so and so you need the question as to a red card in order to warrant the review in the first instance. And then what once once the referee goes to the monitor, they can kind of do whatever they 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 think is appropriate. Um and so, you know, they, like I guess I don't really care about the decision to issue a yellow card for that. You see it sometimes, you see it, you don't see it other times. Whatever. Like they, that that's not a scandalous referee decision. The, the 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 just absurd part was recommending review for that. That I mean that that's a joke. Uh, and yes, you know it it goes it harkens back to the larger issue, which is nobody knows what a clear and obvious error is. There are times where like an error has to be like unbelievable <laughs> to to warrant a review, and you see decisions stand on the field that really look pretty darn wrong. Uh, but but 
the VAR in that instance decides that it wasn't sufficiently clear and obvious, uh, applying a very high bar for that. And then on the other hand, in this instance, you have a, a VAR who's just trying to re-referee the game uh, and and thinks they see something and uh, and and is applying an extremely low basement level uh, clear and obvious uh, error standard. And and I think yeah. that's a big that's something that MLS, which has done better with VAR than many other leagues. That's something that MLS needs to continue to take seriously in trying to drive consistency in in how VARs are going to intervene in these games. But this is also just, I mean, you know, this was, this sort of goes in the category of the pop-up cross that RSL did not, uh, did not handle. This sort of goes in that category for the, the, the refereeing team uh, as a whole, even though I, I don't think it was necessarily Joe Dickerson, the, the center referee's fault. Yeah. And, and, it was made worse by the fact that it was just this like head kick, just this like James Harden style, you know, flop of all flops after what happened. And it was well after, I mean, it was it like was, a couple of seconds yeah. after what <laughs> it happened. It was really rough. And so, so to reward <laughs> something like that with a review is just absurd. And, and it was juxtaposed and made infinitely worse by the fact that later in the half, Ojeda swings two separate elbows back and makes contact with Diego Chara's face. Instant yellow card. I think the right decision yeah. in that moment, but it no doesn't go to VAR. <laughs> they let the play go on. And Diego afterwards was, was just, you know, he, he probably feels this way a lot of the time, but he was like, is it something against me? Like what, what's the problem? Like, is it against the, the team? He actually w- went further than he's, I think, ever gone at least when i've i've been around about referees where he he said that the team is worried that over the last couple of games so many decisions have gone against them that they sort of feel this bias which is is a pretty serious thing to to say publicly and you know i asked miles joseph about it afterwards and and he just kind of laughed and smiled and was like did you watch the game (laughs) you know so you you certainly understand the sentiment to be clear i don't think it was a clear and obvious error not to give a red card for for the elbow yellow feels right uh and if and if we were just looking at that decision by itself we wouldn't even be talking about it today right uh but it was just juxtaposed against what was a, a farcical uh review and and recommended review and it goes to the 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 necessity for referees to sort of keep their credibility uh in these moments and i think you understand why teams feel like referees are not being particularly credible in the way they're calling a game when you see two circumstances like that and one is sent to review for a review of an apparently clear and obvious error not to give not to give a red card so it's something that should be uh you know top of mind uh for referees and for VERs uh, in, in, in the way they're recommending review, uh, and, and in the way they're, they're calling games. Uh, I think this one, you know, everybody just point and laugh at the VAR for that one, because it was, it was an incorrect decision to recommend a review for that. Clearly not a red card. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to pop up on the, the, you know, the scorecard for the game. So the Timbers come out of this game, you know, in, in, you know, a little bit more of a confident space than they were before feeling a little bit better about themselves. Some individuals probably more than others. Um, one, one storyline that I think is, is sort of developing in recent weeks and maybe the, the turmoil of the coaching change and everything else that's been swirling around contributes to this um, is, is the play of Evander. And we've talked about it in, in recent podcasts. You've, you've been critical, I think rightly so of, 
you know, the, the effort level and, and the, the discipline that, that we've seen from Evander uh, in recent weeks. I, I think, you know, it was a more disciplined performance from him in general, but it was not nearly as effective on the attack as I think they need him to be. Santi definitely made up the gaps there. Felipe Mora, Frank Boley during his shift, I think was aggressive, if a bit, you know, erratic at times, but Evander is their playmaker, right? He's, he's sort of the engine that, that for a lot of the season has, has made their attack go, but he's sort of starting to disappear from games in ways that, that, you know, we, we've seen occasionally throughout the season, but I believe is happening more frequently in, in recent matches. And and I'm wondering just your, you know, thousand foot view of that as, as the season sort of, you know, winds down here and it, it's not been maybe up to the standards that, that Evander has for himself or, or that the team may have hoped for him. It's a concern. I mean, he was obviously brought in to be, the Timbers primary playmaker. He was brought in to be their talisman. And, you know, I, I thought his performance last night was more mature than ones we've seen in the last few games. There, there weren't any of the sort of glaring mental errors uh, that have cost the Timbers in games past when, whether it's giving up penalties to picking up red cards to, you know, really, really glaring uh, giveaways and bad positions there wasn't any of that. And, and and frankly, you know, given that they were playing with Blanco on the field as well, we talked some about this early in the season, whether those two guys could coexist. And I think the reasonable perspective was, eh, that'd be tough because there's not all, enough defense in both of them. Uh, I actually thought Evander did more on the defensive side of the ball last night than he has in, in games past. And that allowed that dynamic to not fail. <laughs> I'm not going to say it worked great, uh, but I will say it didn't fail. Uh, and and I think that was because Evander put in a little bit more work on the defensive side of the ball than he has uh, at many points this season. But the thousand foot view, ten thousand foot view, whatever, uh, is that he's not been close to living up to the standard of what the Timbers expected from him this year. And there are a few things to say about that. One is that that's not altogether shocking. Oftentimes, you you know the. the Man, when the Timbers signed Evander, you could not have a conversation with any Timbers employee about Evander without them bringing up the name Hani Mukhtar. Uh, like, like every single time, <laughs> every single time, like you could count on it, set your watch by it. Uh, that that within the first you know twenty seconds of that conversation, they would bring up Hani Mukhtar's name. Yeah, and the reason was because they both played in the Dutch league for yeah. for people who are unfamiliar. Yeah. Uh, th- Danish, but moving on. Uh, Dang it! God, <laughs> I, I, I knew when it came out of my mouth, I was like, "Like that sounds wait. wrong." Uh, but nonetheless, no. uh, you know, and and it is it is fair to point out that Hani Mukhtar's first year in MLS was only okay, and then the next year he was MVP, and he's been superlative since. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that that certainly happens. We see that with some regularity uh, that the player will come into MLS and in their first year will just kind of have a few more struggles as they're figuring things out. And certainly the the lack of stability and sort of the general malaise around him has made that somewhat harder on uh, on Evander. And, and you understand why he may have had some struggles kind of finding his role within a team that hasn't had really clearly defined roles and maybe hasn't put him in the best position to succeed. But nonetheless, there's a decent amount of it that falls on him individually as well. And I think it, it, it's 
undeniable at this point to say that it's been a disappointment. What we're going to find out and what I think the Timbers need to take seriously is figuring out in the next 10 or nine or however many games they have to play out in the season, uh, whether he's going to be the, whether they can go into 2024 relying on him as the guy uh, while giving themselves a credible chance to have a better season. And I I think, you know, I, I don't think we saw a ton of evidence in the, the game against RSL, but the answer to that is yes. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a major question going forward. I think those kinds of questions are going to be more important than overall team results uh, in these next several games, because I think, you know, not to say that the Timbers are absolutely mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They can still make the playoffs. They're what, five points uh, below the red line. I think the uh, the D- FC Dallas is the closest team to them, and they have a game in hand. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's it's a challenge, but they still conceivably could uh, make the playoffs. But I think when you look at whether this team is capable of sort of larger teams, that larger things that are shoot, uh, because finishing ninth ain't shoot. Uh, the answer is fairly clearly no. And so I think you do are more interested in questions like, should the Timbers have a reason to believe that Evander can be the guy next year? Uh, what kind of role is Anthony going to play? Uh, I was a little bit disappointed not to see him in the game against RSL. I, 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 I frankly don't, you know, and it might just be that he isn't at a point in his fitness because he's basically coming in from preseason where he, you know, can play whatever, 25 minutes against Vancouver on Saturday and then play again on Wednesday. Maybe they're just being a little bit more protective uh, to manage his minutes as he's building up. But, I mean, why are you giving, uh, you know, once those questions are aside, why would you be giving minutes to Dairon Espria when you're not giving him to Anthony at this point? Yeah, or even Jimmy Chara. Yeah, like or this, Jimmy Chara at this, at this point. point. Yeah. You know who Espria are. You know you know who Espria is. You know who Jimmy Chara is. Uh, I think you want to figure out who Anthony is uh, so you can be ready to use him in, in, in 2024. I think getting uh, Juan Mosquera back in form uh, is is a critical uh, sort of task for the Timbers. And those are the questions that I think are going to be important for them. And Evander is certainly one of them. Definitely. No, there's there's... A lot of questions coming up in the offseason, a lot of turnover that I, I believe is going to happen inevitably, given some of the expiring contracts, given the age of some of the players. And and so in looking forward in, in embracing that sort of change, you, you, you never want to admit that you're punting on a season, right? But when you fire your coach, you, you're you're at the very least taking the snap from the long snapper on the season, <laughs> you know, like you're, you may not have kicked it. Maybe, yet. maybe, they'll, may, maybe they'll, they'll fake it, but probably. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they'll run a fake, it's, it's, but they're it, probably like going to fourth and 18. So they're probably going to, yeah. Punt. Yeah. It might be like a pooch punt type thing too, where they start to run out to the right a little bit and you're like, Oh, oh but, but then they, they, they're going to kick it. Look, they're, they're kicking the ball down the field. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty much over here. And so, so with that in mind, with that sort of tacit knowledge in mind, if, if you're, you know, executives or coaches, you, you have to make that your focus. You have to make somebody like Anthony, your focus, um, keep an eye on Evander, make sure that, you know, you're, you're managing everything with him. We, we, we talk a lot about performance and, and about motivation and, and things like that. And that's all well and good, but you know, is he happy here? Is he, is he adjusting well to life in Portland? 
Um, you know, all of those things factor into to a player's form to to his um, to his play on the field. He he even said it a, a couple games ago when they when they played Vancouver and lost. Um, even with the the better second half where he scored a goal, he he scored a goal, and in the post game press conference, he said the bad the vibes are bad right now and that he's been here seven months and a lot has happened. And, you know, the, the way he said it, the manner in which he said it makes me think as, as somebody who, who obviously is around the team, but, but isn't within the team that, that he's sort of struggling with this a bit. That this is something that, that is weighing on him, not only the, the stuff swirling around him, but sort of the, the pressure that goes with it, that now that you're in a lost season, there are these sort of more critical eyes on you and it's on him to deliver for sure. You know, that's what they brought him here for and that's what they paid 10 million for. But at the same time, it it can be a lot. It it can certainly be a lot. And I did want to say one thing about the, the Vancouver post game. Look, Evander cost him that game with the terrible penalty, which was the penalty. No question about it. Uh, correct call evander basically immediately in that moment acknowledged it was a correct call when he just walked away uh and he had other really bad plays in that yeah, game and, too that, and, that were part of why they lost yeah it, you know i i think it is not unfair to say he cost them that game credit to him for coming and talking to the media afterwards for facing the music and and taking that bit of responsibility that's a small thing uh but there have been a lot of instances in which you haven't seen guys raising their hands uh, and sort of and sort of facing uh, responsibility and taking accountability uh, for things. And, and that goes sort of across the club. Um, and so credit to him for in that moment being willing to come out and and take responsibility and, and, and kind of face that music a little bit. Uh, I think the point you made, I want to circle back and, and sort of touch tangentially on a point you made earlier about Santi Moreno having his family in town. There was a time sort of in the Timbers uh, MLS experience in which they really, really prioritized signing players who planned to bring their family. And, you know, in talking about players going through rough stretches and kind of the off field stuff uh, and, and adjusting to MLS, there was a time where they really prioritized wanting to bring folks in who plan to bring their family to to Portland because they felt that that put players in a better position to be able to adjust and ultimately produce on the field just because they would have more stability and 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 sort of a core bit of happiness uh at home and off the field. Uh and you know, I I wonder if that's something to start thinking a bit more about again. Uh and and you know, I mean the Santi's comments after the game about having his family and scoring in front of his mom and having uh, his daughter in town, uh, you know, I, I think give them an opportunity to kind of think about that once more. Uh, and as they're going through these changes over the course of the the next several months that, you know, we thought they were going to go through many of them last year. They didn't. Seems like many of them are now inescapable. Uh, you wonder if that's going to be top of mind once again for for Ned Grabovoy to bring in folks who are sort of coming not necessarily with the idea of putting down roots, but that are going to kind of have bring that support system with them uh, to, to, to have folks who are going to be a little in a little bit better position uh, to be, you know, happy and able to, to adjust to, to the environment here. Yeah. And, and I think going that extra mile to, to help 
with visa issues to help with immigration challenges that come with it, is, which are all huge thing to do. And they are. Yeah. The, the U S immigration system is unbelievably and unnecessarily complex. It, it has all these constant hoops to jump through and red tape and everything else that make it difficult for people like professional athletes to bring their families yep, up here. You think about Marvin Lurie as a good example. He had to fly back to Costa Rica for the birth of his child. And that's, that is a long freaking way to have to fly and is is stressful because yeah. he, he he you know f- didn't know if he was going to be there necessarily for the birth he he could very well have missed he made it and it was a very special moment he shared it on instagram um but you know there there are other players who i know have have dealt with these issues with either their partners or their extended family members not you know making it to the u.s in in a way where they can be here for an extended period or or semi-permanently and even when the process goes smoothly you hear all the time about players who who come and have been here for months and months and months and they're like finally my family is able to come you know i mean these are all big 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 sort of parts of parts of the challenge and yeah i mean you know we can get into whether that's a system that makes sense uh but you know i mean those are all challenges for players uh the the in in sort of Make, I mean, when we talk about how players have year one underperformances and that kind of stuff, those are huge factors. I mean, it, it, imagine leaving your partner behind for a year. Imagine leaving your kids behind for uh, for a year and trying to go perform in a high-pressure work environment. That sounds like it would be hard for me. Uh, and I think a lot of players feel the same. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like that, that also needs to go into and factor into the Timbers' decision making in terms of who they're bringing in, uh, and and how and the kinds of players they're targeting as they're making these uh, these changes, and that's not to say to sort of be a pejorative for uh, players who wouldn't be able to bring their family. That's almost always just outside their control entirely. Um, but it is a matter of uh, of importance in terms of the Timbers and what they hope for and the expectations that they have for players in year one. That'll wrap it for us today on Soccer Made in Portland. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you to Chris Reifer, as always, for his insight and analysis. You can follow us on Twitter at Soccer Made in PDX, at Chris Reifer, and at Ryan T. Clark. That's the platform formerly known as Twitter. X, follow us there. Like us, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, review us if you so choose. Uh, we'll be back next week to, to chat more Timbers and Thorns. So thanks again, everybody.